Kemper, nicknamed the Koa Killer, murder of his grandparents at just 15, he managed to con his way out of his first arrest sentence, allowing him to murder eight more people. Ed turned himself in after his last murder and decided to use his knowledge of serial killers to partner and educate the FBI, changing their behavioral science unit forever. This episode contains murder, rape, and child abuse. Welcome to An Easy, a podcast hosted by Lexi and Cecilia. This podcast is a collection of research based on haunting and mysterious events that will leave you feeling genuinely uneasy. Discretion is advised. Edmund Kemper III, who goes by Ed, was born December 18, 1948, in Bourbon, California, to Clarnell and Edmund Kemper II. Ed's childhood was nothing sort of easy or loving. His mom hated men. She said that Ed could not receive love or he would grow up to be a weak man, though it wasn't her resentment towards all of her children. She showed so much adornment to her daughters and loved them with everything. Her alcoholism also got worse, causing her to act out more against Ed III and created a strain within her marriage. This strain caused her and her husband to get a divorce. Edmund Jr. was a World War II vet and even stated suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. And she affected him more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front line of dead. (laughs) That just shows how bad their marriage was and how much Clarnell like, and that has to have a massive men. effect on your children if your significant other can like blatantly state that his relationship with you is worse than wartime and atomic bombs I cannot even imagine the long-standing trauma that the children you know occurred from his mom Yes, it definitely wasn't a happy childhood for any of them, but the two daughters did have a nicer life because Clarnell did show love towards them, but Ed III really just was hated by his mom for no reason. After the divorce, Clarnell moved her kids to Montana. In Montana, Ed originally had a room upstairs beside his sisters, and then his mom started to think that He was growing dangerous, even though at the time he had shown nothing that was dangerous. She just, again, had that resentment towards men. And at that time, she then forced Ed to sleep in the basement every night and would lock him in there after the girls would go to bed. That is ridiculous. That's just straight-up child abuse. That's awful. It's 100% child abuse, and Ed contributes this to his first feelings of isolation and what really started his resentment for his mom he stated every night i watch my sisters go to heaven while i walk downstairs to hell again ed is just a little kid wow so at this time he started to have wild fantasies about death again he was thinking that he was living in hell and started acting them out with his sisters which was very interesting some of his favorite childhood games were actually called the electric chair and the gas chamber. Wow. His dad was wow. a World War II vet. So I do think that some of the stories from his dad played into these games that he would play. But Probably. I mean, 
I don't know how else he would know about that. I mean, I guess, like, kids at school could talk about it, whatever, but, like, I don't know about you, but I played, like, house and, like, detective Teacher. and things like that. <laughs> not not gas chamber. That is awful. But have his sister strap him to a chair and then flip him over like he was getting electrocuted. So they would, like... <gasps> flip the chair over and like kind of like knock him out in a sense and give him a jolt and that was his way of like having an imaginary electrocution from the electric chair game that he would play and then he would also wrap his sisters up in a like a carpet and himself and they would see how long it would take them to pass out or wiggle free from it did his, like, I know his mom didn't care about him, but did his dad, like, ever see this as a red flag, or was he just, like, too consumed with being unhappy in his marriage? Ed never showed signs of being a red flag until he had moved to Montana and his dad was out of the picture fully. Okay. So, sleeping in the basement every night, he would, again, he would be beside rats, so he would listen to them as he was falling asleep. It was very damp. Again, and it was not a luxury of, like, a finished basement, no movie theater, nothing. Um, and then he would go to bed hearing his mom scream at him, calling him an awful person. He was just oh. a child. And then he would wake up every morning to his mom unlocking the door and calling him an awful things. Uh, this is really, like, nature versus nurture. 100% story right here 100% um so all of these things that his mom was doing just caused him to act out more and more as time progressed and then he eventually took his first life so he ended up killing his family cat he buried the cat alive waited for it to suffocate dug it up decapitated it and then put the cat's head on a stake this was when he was just 13. What the heck? That is so gruesome. Like, it's one thing to just kill an animal, okay? The fact that it's your family cat is bad enough. But then you're going to dig it back up, decapitate it, and put its head on a stake. And this is like, for people who don't know, like, killing animals is a common precursor to... um signs of being a murderer or even a serial killer so that's just very alarming especially at the age of 13 but any age at all that's very alarming yes and then his mom of course accused him thought that he was a suspect and then she eventually did find the cat and punished him and this just caused him to act out even more and then he killed another family cat but this time with a machete and then he kept half of this cat's remains in his closet so he could Ew. look at and examine. No. And then he <sighs> buried the rest of the remains. But his mom ended up finding the remains in his closet due to the disgusting smell of that it, of course. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. And I can only, like, your mom already doesn't like you. And you're leaving, like, rancid roadkill smell in her house keeping things in his room like decapitated parts 
Um, this started at 13 and progressed all throughout his lifetime, as I'll get into. But these killings just caused his mom, his relationship with his mom, just become more strange, of course. She, he killed two of the family cats. So at 14, he actually ran away to live with his dad. Keep in mind, his mom was living in Montana and his dad was still living in California. So he hitchhiked okay. all the way down to California. Wow. That's a long way. Very, especially for a 14 year old. He thought that his dad was the only one that understood him. So that's why he made the trek. Um, unfortunately, though, whenever he got there, he found out that his dad had remarried. And he felt completely and utterly replaced by this new woman and her children that were now his dad's stepchildren. Ugh. So he, he really has like no one. No one at all. Not even his sisters, because, of course, like they have a mother that treats them well. So. Yeah. So they're going to listen to the mom. Mm hmm. So his Dad being remarried just made him, again, feel more lonely and betrayed. And then he started acting out towards his stepmom because she, he felt like his stepmom was now the culprit in ruining his relationship with his dad. So he would disobey her constantly. And then also, whenever she was, like, showering, he would stand at the door when she was, like, in a towel and not leave. Or if she was going into her room to change, he would just stand there awkwardly, not in a... Ew sexual way he got no sexual pleasure from it but just in a very creepy i want to make you feel very uncomfortable type way even if it wasn't meant to be sexual i'm sure the stepmom like took it that way like why are you just like creepily standing and watching me i don't like that at all yeah so her feeling so unwell from his presence she forced his dad and she gave his dad an ultimatum it's me or it's your son so his dad did choose her over his son, and he then sent Ed to live with his dad's parents uh, on a farm in California. He thought that that would help Ed kind of adjust and learn some values as he's, like, living on a farm, taking care of things. Okay. Um, when he got to the farm, though, his grandmother was very irate towards her husband because... Her husband had Alzheimer's, so she constantly was saying that she didn't trust him. She was sternly talking to him, forcing mm -hmm. him to do certain things, and Ed viewed it in the same way that he viewed his mother screaming at her husband. He didn't realize that his grandmother really had a lot of love for her husband. It was just the fact that he did have Alzheimer's, so there was things that he couldn't do for himself and there were memories that was altered in his head so of course she's not going to like fully listen to the things that her husband is now saying so his distrust for his grandmother and the way that she treated her grandfather in addition his grandmother also talked really poorly on his mom and then blamed any of the actions that ed had that were negative on the way that his mother raised him so if he didn't listen to his grandmother it was well your mother raised you that way of course she did she's such a bad parent and so this just mm -hmm. added to the negative feelings that Ed had for his grandmother because in some way that was still his mom and he still like cared for her 
Mm-hmm. And he thought that the way that he she was talking about his mother like reflected negatively on him. So he started just acting out more again and he would do always the opposite of what she asked of him. So one day his grandmother and him were in a very heated verbal argument and as Ed was storming out the door, his grandmother told him not to go shoot any birds. So he went outside and grabbed his gun and then he ended up coming back and shooting her three times. There are some reports saying that he stabbed her as well, but those are not really confirmed, but it it could be possible because he did stab other people, some more of his victims. But (laughs) the kicker is Ed said that his grandmother should be proud of him because he did, in fact, not shoot any birds that day. How smug of him. I know. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, where... Where was his grandfather? So his grandfather was actually at the store when this fight all took place. And then when his grandfather came back from the store, Ed acted like he was going out to help him. Um, And then when his grandfather's back was turned, he shot him as well. What the heck? But in a sad way, he said that he only shot his grandfather because he didn't want his grandfather to realize that his wife was dead. He obviously did not feel the same remorse for his grandmother because whenever police were asking him why he killed her, he said that he just wanted to know what it felt like to kill grandma. So Ed was only 15 at the time of this murder, and he didn't know how to drive. He lived on a farm in literally the middle of nowhere, and he knew that he couldn't call his dad. His dad had abandoned him. But his mom technically never abandoned him. He abandoned his mom. So he thought that the Mm. only person that he could call and figure out the situation and what to do from it was to call his mom. So he did just that. Interesting. I just think that's so interesting because he has such a hatred towards his mom and that played such a huge role in why he just killed his grandparents. And then that's the person who he falls back on for advice on what to do. I just feel like this, he has absolutely no idea what a real support system is, and that's sad in itself. I think his whole life, he truly was craving love, and he saw his mom give love to other people right? and never understood why he couldn't receive that as well, and I think he just earned for it his whole life because he continues to go back to her. So during the phone call that he had with his mom, his mom did convince him to turn himself in. So his next call was to the cops and then they came and arrested him. After being arrested, he was examined by psychologists to determine how he gruesomely murdered two people at just 15. They gave him an IQ test and he actually scored at a 136 originally and then he scored again at a 145 on his second test. This is just 15 points below Einstein. Yeah, I was going to say that's pretty high IQ test. He's like a certified genius. And that led psychologists to not understand why such an intelligent person would commit such a heinous act. So they diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. And they said that no one with his level of intelligence could commit something without having a mental illness. So they just couldn't fathom that he would commit these murders 
be like, okay, mm. you know, we're going to give you a diagnosis then. Right. I feel like that's kind of a scapegoat for, like, not wanting to accept that it could have really just been because he was an awful person. 100%. And at – so he was sent to a state hospital in California for the criminally insane juvenile – for criminally insane juveniles. And even the staff at the hospital were like, your diagnosis doesn't really make sense. Maybe you're not mm. fully mentally ill. Maybe it's a wrong diagnosis. And so that allowed Ed to kind of cheat through the system and befriend the staff there because they thought that he didn't have such an extreme diagnosis as he was given by the courts. Right. And probably also compared to other cases that they were seeing of residents there at the hospital um especially in a criminally insane juvenile hospital if he's not truly someone who has that diagnosis the medical professionals are going to be the ones to see that so he used like what they thought of him into gaining i already said that um part of during his five years at the hospital, he told psychologists that he was interested in learning about the human behavior. And so, again, they didn't really think that he was fully insane. So they allowed him to run papers for the staff after they were done interviewing the other people at the hospital just to give him a job to do. He was only 16 whenever he started this job. And so while he was running these papers, he would – Take the long way, essentially, and read through all of the files and all the comments that the oh. psychologist had made on each patient and each question that was asked of them and see what were the right answers, what were deemed the right answers by the staff and the questions that were, like, how to prepare for the questions that were asked and just what staff were looking for within each interview. And then he went and he memorized all these trends to use for his own advantage. Wow. That just that right there shows his intelligence. He went and sought out his own textbook, essentially, of one, how to like get out of there if he needed to, what answers to say, and and two, he's also learning from all of these people where he's in this hospital with of what they've done and how they've done it type of thing he was able to take it one step further earning more of the trust of the staff and they allowed him to sit in on all the interviews so he was meeting all these rapists all these killers and in these interviews he was now learning what got them caught what they did when they weren't caught and how they planned all of these rapes and all of these murders that has to be malpractice like why is a patient sitting in on a new like incoming patient's interview i'd also be so confused like seeing seeing that as a patient right it's not like he's like a well-dressed intern no <laughs> sitting in like buddy how did like, you get here like mind your own business yeah. that's so weird yeah so he was a to use all of these things that he learned within his interviews and, again, what the staff were looking for and the answers to act like he was rehabilitated. 
And they mm-hmm. actually let him out on parole on his 21st birthday oh, because gosh. they thought that he was cured. Wow. So whenever he was released, he was forced to live with his mom to have a proper home. And his dad didn't want right. him and his sisters didn't want him. Obviously, he killed their grandparents and his dad's parents. So I would also not mm-hmm. want that kid. Um, but his mom did take him in and at the time, by the time that he was released, his mom had already remarried and divorced again, just showing that she does not have a healthy relationship with men. Right. She had moved from Montana back to California where she was working at the university of California, Santa Cruz, which this job plays a very significant part later on. Okay. So whenever he was released, he did the normal transition to adulthood. He was attending community college to satisfy his parole. He actually wanted to become a cop. He liked. He said he really liked the structure that was within the police force, hmm. and he really respected them. But his application was denied because he was too tall. Ed Kemper was six nine. Wow, he was genuinely a giant. That's like NBA status. I know. Like that's that's big. But my question is, he was denied because he was 6'9", not because he had killed two people? No, because he was 6'9". Okay. So he, to add to that, his record was from when he was a minor. So at the time, he was working on okay. getting it expunged. And it was sealed anyways because of his minor status whenever he did commit these murders. So okay. it is no fault to the police force, but... They did have a rule of no one could be higher, taller than 6'5". So his height was a primary factor. And this just led him to feeling denied again. He had been bullied right. when he was a kid for his height. They called him Big Ed. And he just felt like there was really nothing out there for him if he couldn't get the one job that he really wanted. Since he was denied from the police force, he began working as a road construction worker and he would go hang out at the cop bar that was near his work to try to befriend all the staff, all the cops that were coming in. That's kind of sad. It actually, I, I th- do think it is, but they did call him a nuisance. They said that he was a friendly nuisance, but this is where Ed would ask them on all the killers that they were catching at the time, how they were doing the job how they were finding people and investig- like their investigation practices. So this was just another way that he was using, trying to investigate by like befriending people and trying to gain their trust. Right. So Ed appeared completely normal when he was like on parole. He actually got an apartment with a friend, unknown who this friend is, but he lived in this apartment for a really long time with his friend. So he was able to maintain healthy relationships, and he went on dates. He found this one girl that he really liked, but I think he said that she was too, like, innocent. And he would often even drive by her house thinking about the life that he could have lived with her. Wow. His mom forced that relationship to break up. And then at another point, he actually ended up getting engaged they met on a beach. Her name is undisclosed because she was actually at a, a minor whenever they were engaged. Oh. Again, Ed okay. is in his 20s at this point. 
and he's dating a minor. Yeah. Yikes. Creep. I think the minor status does play a lot into what Ed is able to hide from certain people because she's innocent. She's not asking certain questions and she's like probably more believable than someone of his own age. So that's how he was able to get away with things because they did not break up until his second arrest. Wow. So though he was living in an apartment with his roommate, you would think that this is the end of his relationship with his mom. He's moving on. He's doing great. Until Ed gets hit by a car and breaks his arm. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. Wow. One thing after another with this guy. Um, He loses his job as a road construction worker. And this is when he starts falling really short on money. But he receives, like, a significant payment from the driver that hit him. And that's where he gets the money to buy a car. But he often goes to his mom's house when he's low on money and then she'll call him and antagonize him whenever he's not coming over. So his relationship with his mom never ends during all of this. Such a toxic relationship. 100%. Like, neither of them like each other. But they continue to have each other in their lives. And I think it's probably because, like, oh, she's still my mom. He's still my son type thing. Like, I think it's like, quote, like, blood thicker than water. But if Ed was not communicating with his mom since he was a child, his life, I truly believe, would be completely different. Right. So on May 7th, 1972, is when we really see the effects of his relationship with his mother is really playing out into his life. This is three years after he was released from the hospital. He gets an intense argument with his mother, so he ends up, driving around and picks up two hitchhikers mary ann and anita mary they both go to stanford university where they asked him to drive them to he drove them around aimlessly for hours looking for a secluded spot and this is where he took both of their lives he stabbed them both and then took their bodies back to his apartment that he was staying at with his friend wow he took photographs of them and kept them as souvenirs, and then he later desecrated their corpse, dismembered them, and buried their body parts in different sections of Santa Cruz that he was living in. So he buried most of their body parts, I should say. That is insane. So that was just like pure rage after being in an argument with his mom, and he basically went out essentially seeking to find something that didn't really matter who it was. It was just something he could let his rage out on, is what it seems like to me. He had thought about taking other people's lives, like other hitchhikers, for a long time, but it was not until that really intense argument that he had with his mom that he felt the urge build up that much that he finally it pushed him to kill someone. He had picked up yeah. over 100. He said that he had picked up over 150 hitchhikers before he took these two lives. Wow. So it's very clear that his mom is the emotional trigger for him. Yes. Wow. So a trend that 
Ed has, I guess I should say, is that he keeps their heads for a couple weeks, just like he did with the cat, and he pleasures himself to the head. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. I could have... That is insane. So when he buried the body parts, they found most of the body parts but the heads for a long time until he later dumped them. That's disgusting. Um, I actually don't think I have any other words for that. Here is a clip of Ed, Ed talking about how he realized he was losing control whenever he kept the severed heads. As I'm sitting there with a severed head in my hand, talking to it, or looking at it, and I'm about to go crazy, literally. I'm about to go completely flywheel loose and just fall apart. I say, wow, this is insane. And then I told myself, no, it isn't. You're saying that, and that makes it not insane. I said, I'm sane, and I'm looking at a severed... I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I see old ink paints, paintings and drawings of Viking heroes talking to severed heads and taking them to parties, old enemies and leather bags. That is so incredibly scary to hear him like that is his actual voice to hear him saying so like it's almost casual like oh I was holding this head like it it almost sounds too like he's he's done it a lot and that it's like normal for him even though he's talking about like losing control and feeling crazy in that moment it just sounds like it's not a hard topic for him to talk about countless hours with interviewers where he very blatantly just walked through his life and what he was thinking and at every point he's very calm and very rational in his thoughts and he has fully processed before the murder during the murder when he's holding the body parts what he's thinking and what he's feeling and there is no like there's true no truly no insanity there and that's why he was able to leave the hospital because again they thought that he wasn't insane he just had demons inside of him that it oh, oh, <laughs> i can't get I can't get over just hearing him talk about it. Yeah, I... It's crazy how... I definitely think... Yeah, just casually, he is so willing to talk about every part of what he was feeling in these moments. Yeah, I feel like so many killers and murderers don't take interviews and don't talk to people. And that's what leaves such a great mystery behind a lot of cases because you're like, you almost want them to open up then it, th- things like that happen where you hear the interview and you get creeped out you know so it's kind of a double-edged sword but that's interesting that he was so willing to take so many interviews yeah like with the toy box killer we heard him talk but these are tapes that we heard for the violence right. that he was committing at the time he did not reflect right. back on and admit to the things and what was going through his head the same way that ed so easily dead so many times so he also also later confessed that he visited the burial sites of his first two victims on several occasions 
and that the photos that he took of them satisfied him for a long time but after a while while they just didn't have the same satisfaction and he had already disposed of the heads so he felt that he needed to pick up another hitchhiker which he did Mm -hmm. on september 14th 1972 he picked up just a 15 year old girl named aigoku she missed the bus on her way to dance class so he told her that he would give her a ride he pulled the same thing that he pulled with his first two victims driving them to a remote area except for this time he pulled a gun on aigo she tried calming him down being rational with him he acted like he was depressed with her to try to make her feel like she was in a safe environment and he was it really successful in this actually because locking himself and out of the car and he had his gun in the car with Aiko. And so she's still sitting in the car with the gun right beside her with his gun. Yes. And he is standing outside of the car. Yes. And he asked her to unlock the door for him. And she does because she thinks that she has successfully oh, calmed no. him down. Oh, no. She's just 15 at the time. Ugh. After she lets him back inside, he proceeds to choke her unconscious, rape her, and then kill her. Ugh. That poor sweet girl was just trying to go to dance class. I know. And he's now, I would say at this point, he's now addicted to the kill because he didn't have he didn't have a heated argument with his mom before this did he no he just was no longer satisfied from his first two kills okay yeah so he's officially getting that killer's high from it and he wrote it for as long as he could and then he sought it out again he was so numb to the act in itself that he actually went to a bar afterwards got a couple drinks and then whenever he was leaving he opened his trunk and just admired her dead body for a while Calling it Ew. his catch because he was a fisherman. Ew. That is, that's just evil. That's awful. So these first three kills after he got released are all before his parole is up and his record is expunged. Okay. He was... So now he's murdered three more people from his original two. He has no record. And his last probational psychiatrist says, in reference to Ed, if I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and was free from any psychiatric illnesses. He has truly played the system. Like, yes, ma'am, he is intelligent, but he's so intelligent that he has played you. Like, he has, he's killed five people. It shows how much he learned while he was in the hospital, running errands right. and sitting in on meetings. Yes, you let him sit in on meetings, in taking new criminally insane people into the hospital. That was like a crash course 101 of how to be a terrible human. That's just awful. And less than two months later, 
on January 7th, 1973, he takes another life. So by this point, he had officially lost all of his money and he was now living back with his mother. The first three kills, he was living in that apartment with his friend. He had the body parts in the apartment, were unsure how his roommate did not smell them, but that was never an investigation. So by January 7th, he's now with his mother and he is driving around a college campus where he picks up an 18-year-old girl named Cynthia Ann Shaw. He drove her to a wooden area and then he ended up shooting her with a pistol. He follows the same MO and he keeps Shaw's head for several days, pleasuring himself with it. Ew. But then he buried the head after disposing of the body parts in the woodlands around Santa Cruz. He buried the head in his mother's garden facing out towards his bedroom. Wow. He said... That's disrespectful. (laughs) He said he did that because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. Once again, very smug. Very, very smug individual. Like, smug and sarcastic, petty at its evilest. Like, that is awful. So, by this time, Shaul's... So after, like, a couple weeks, Shaw's remains were found after he disposed of them. And that's when California realized that they were dealing with a serial killer. They saw patterns with all of his murders. Um, And he was killing at the same time as serial killer Herbert Mullen. So that gave Santa Cruz the nickname the murder capital of the United States. Because they were several many, many murders just in a two-year span at that time. Right. So students at the University of California, Santa Cruz, were advised not to accept any rides from cars without university stickers on them. However, his mother put a university sticker on his car because she worked there. So she, she did. You told me to hold on to that information. Yeah. And I did. She said that if she ever needed his car, like, it was in the purpose of if she needed his car to take to work one day that she would have a parking pass. We know college parking. So bad. They will take it you in a heartbeat. College parking is the biggest scam. <laughs> I don't blame her for putting a parking pass on his car. But this just allowed him to lure people in when they thought they were being safe and following the protocols that were given to them by their school. However, interestingly enough, if anyone mentioned the killings to Ed while he was while he was giving them a ride, he would not kill them. Is it like I wonder if he was like, "Oh, they're like a fan. Like they're admiring my work, so I'm not going to kill them." I'm not because so it's really unsure and Ed, this is the one thing that Ed never really talks about. He talks about if they mentioned him and they got a free ride that day but with the rest of the murders he never wanted them to think that they were getting murdered so Mm. think about Aiko she he tried convincing her that he just had depression instead of the fact that he was going to kill her and with the rest of the murders they were more like behind their back essentially I'm not quite sure if 
he was thinking that they were fan or if he didn't want people like to like get suspicious or he was kind of like nervous like if they're already paranoid about it then it's like kind of throwing off maybe or like shy normal game like oh i don't want you to think about me like that oh (laughs) (laughs) i don't know that's very interesting you you can go ask at he is still in jail I'm okay, actually. (laughs) I'm good just talking to you about Ed. So, on February 5th, 1973, after another heated argument with his mother, he then took the the lives of Rosalind Heather Torp and Alice Helen Liu. These were girls at the U.S. University of California Santa Cruz campus that he was able to lure in with the sticker. He followed the same M.O. as his other killings and disposed of their parts by keeping their heads for a long time. Mm. So by this point, Ed had the nickname the co-ed killer because he was killing college girls on a co-ed campus. Right. April 20th, 1973, Ed took his final lives. So this was two months after he took the lives of the two college girls his mother had returned home drunkenly from a party and said sarcastic comments ed and here's ed describing the night i went in there hoping i could stop this stuff in the back of my head i'm not planning on it i'm just a little hope and the first thing out of her mouth was she's reading this book and she just flaps it down on herself and says oh my god i suppose now you want to stay up all night and talk that was one of her favorite peeves when i come in late at night and want to talk and once in a long while, like that night, I spun on my heel and said, nope, and I, and walked back out. And she knew she'd hurt my feelings, and the next day we'd sit down and talk. Except I knew that we weren't going to talk. And I went back in my room, and I laid down. I did not go to sleep. I laid there for four, well, three hours, four hours, till four, five in the morning, a little after five in the morning, and walked in there with a hammer. To recap, he waited until she was asleep, and then he beat her to death with a claw hammer and then slit her throat with a penknife. He then pleasured himself to her decapitated head. No. No. I know. That is his mom. That part's the most. Ugh. 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 That's, that was the worst one, I think. He then took the head, put it on a shelf, screamed at it, and threw darts at it. Wow. That's like a lot this of This is him finally anger. releasing all that anger and that rage that he's ha- been holding on his whole life. So following releasing that aggression towards her head, he then went back and cut out her tongue and voice box as justification for her screaming at him for all these years. That's so gruesome to, like, that just shows that he really, like, didn't have that much of a care for his mom. To be able to just, like, handle bodies like that after you've killed them, like, you're not fully connecting with what you've not just at all. done. He didn't care. at. It shows that he was not connecting at all because he then went to a bar after he was done 
mutilating his mother, got a couple drinks, and at the bar he realized that his mom, like his mother's work, was probably going to realize she was missing soon. He went back to his house and he called his mother's best friend. And he told his mother's best friend that she needs to come over. They're going to celebrate his mother for with dinner and a movie. And this was all a ruse because his mother and her friend, Sally Taylor Hamlet, often go on spontaneous trips together. So he thought that if they were both missing, then people wouldn't suspect that there was something, like something mm. had gone wrong with his mother. So as soon as... His mother's friend, Sarah Taylor, came to the house. He strangled her to death, and he put her in the closet with his mom. He left a note for police after he put them both in there, if they ever looked for the two women. And after he put the note in the closet, he fled the scene. He drove over a 1,000 miles nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado. His car was loaded with guns and ammo. He was trying to cross the border. And he only ever stopped for gas or caffeine. He would take caffeine pills. And while he was at the gas station buying these pills, he would read the newspaper. He thought he would find in all the newspapers about his the gruesome murder he committed. And he thought police would be looking for him. He knew that he couldn't hide a nationwide manhunt because of his height. Again, right. he was coming in at 6'9", and he was a bigger man. So he ended up just turning himself in. After traveling a thousand miles, what? he turned himself in a Pueblo. Wow. He didn't put much effort into Not that. Not at all. I think he was just done with everything. I think he'd done what, yeah. I mean, there was no more satisfaction for him. I feel like his him. whole life, yeah, his whole life, he was just battling this like hatred for his mom and. It's not like he was um, successful in a career or had successful relationships with others. So he probably at that point just felt like, okay, like I've done what I I need to do. I'll go ahead and take myself to jail, I guess. It shows that his mother was his real goal all along. So he went to a phone booth that he found in Pueblo and he called the police in Santa Cruz. The first person that... The first police officer that picked up the phone thought that this was a prank and just hung up on him. He then called back a couple hours later, and the next police officer that answered recognized his voice from whenever they would frequent the same bar. Oh my gosh, throwback. (laughs) So he also thought that Ed was just joking, but had Ed stay on the phone with him while he sent another cop to go out to his mother's house and inspect. Right. So, of course, the cop went to the mother's house, found the two dead bodies, and the cop that was on the phone with him radioed in for someone to come to the phone booth and arrest Ed. While he was in custody, it did not take long for him to then confess to all the rest of the murders. And he was found guilty on November 7th, 1973. So not long after he killed his mother and her friend. While he was awaiting trial, though, he asked for the death penalty, but California actually halted it. So it showed that Ed really just didn't care. He completed his goal, and he was done with it. Yeah, he was done. 
His counsel, though, tried using the insanity plea multiple times, but he was still found he was found sane by three different psychiatrists. That literally proves the point that he one was wrongfully diagnosed when he was a juvenile because they just I think they just were dismissing him instead of getting him help that he could have gotten at that age. And two, that he was extremely intelligent and was playing this ploy the entire time. The psychiatrist, when he was 15, I just believe truly couldn't fathom that someone could commit something like that because they had never seen anyone like it before. He was the first of his kind, being a genius, Mm -hmm. and then also committing these heinous acts. But by the time that he is now, it's 1973, there are, the frequency of serial killers are significantly higher. Ed wanted to die so much that he actually tried committing suicide twice while he was awaiting his guilty verdict. Mm. Ed continues to be in prison since he was found guilty in 1973. He's been in the same prison since he was convicted. And he's actually lived in the same cell block as the murderer Herbert Mullen that was murdering at the... Was killing at the same time as him. And Charles Manson. Oh, gosh. Interesting enough, he says that he hated Mullen because he was a very weak man. He would antagonize him all the time because he was also, like, a foot shorter than him. So he, like, turned into the bully in this situation. (laughs) He is a bully. Um, But Ed knew that he was never going to get out, and nor did I think he ever really wanted to. And he then became a model prisoner while he was in jail just to kind of occupy his time. So he's made several ceramics. You might be able to buy them on eBay if anyone's interested. And he has recorded, I think, over 5,000 hours worth of audiobooks. He did all of these activities until 2015 when he suffered a stroke. And it wasn't actually until 2016 that he violated his first rule in prison. This was 43 years after he was found guilty. He didn't want to provide a urine sample. The urine sample didn't come back negative, like for drugs or anything. So unsure why he was so resistant for this urine sample. Hmm. That's weird. The most notable things that Ed did while in prison is that he has completely shaped the FBI's behavioral science unit into what everyone thinks of today. So if you think of Criminal Minds or if you watch the TV show Mindhunter that actually does feature Ed Kemper in it, then you will see just the ways that he has shaped the BSU. So during the 1970s, the police didn't know a lot about criminals and how they were thinking. So they often visit prisons to try to talk to them. And Ed was actually one of the only people that were willing to talk. If, as I was playing earlier, those were some of the clips that he, of him talking to people within the FBI. Okay. So he gave countless interviewers to profilers, including a really prominent one called John Douglas. He gave true and honest feedback into the minds of serial killers. And he was able to articulate and clearly state what he was thinking which is very different than people that had mental illnesses that were in prison at the time. 
So that really set him apart from the other interviews that they were conducting. And he also just didn't really want to gain anything. So he wasn't trying to get early parole from it or like a lesser charge, a nicer prison cell. He was just giving honest feedback at the time. Okay. So, again, these were very rare insights into the mind of a killer. And here is a clip of Ed talking about how many people he suspects were killing in the area around the time that he was arrested. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Can you say how many people might be doing crimes like you were doing? It would be a guess, but it's not. It's far more than 35. It isn't that impossible in this society. 35 people is a lot of people. To be, like, that was very shocking to me. I thought he was going to maybe say, like, less than 10. Right? Because when you think about, I don't know, though, because then when you think about, you know, you're seeing all the missing like children and missing people like reports like every time I see those a piece of me is like oh could they be dead you know I think that goes through everybody's mind so then that makes me be like okay maybe 35 people is feasible but does he ever say how he came up with that number or is it just because he himself was doing it so he was able to tell signs of it he I think it's just his, like, what a number that he views is, like, really plausible because he killed so easily and he was never actually caught. They knew that they right. were still a killer on the loose. And at the same time, there was a, um, another really famous serial killer killing in just a two-year span of his kills. So he was attending. I feel attending. like that time was – that time period in general was very common for – serial killings and just crime in general I feel like there was a lot of crime in the 70s area so the 70s are where we'll where we do pull from most of our more infamous serial killers and at that time there's not as much technology so it's just a lot easier for people to travel around the United States and kill Mm -hmm. if you look at Ted Bundy he was able to go across different states and the awareness of who he was wasn't as accessible because there were TVs, but there's not social media in the same way that there is today. Right. So these countless interviews, again, just highlight, just shaped the way that the FBI were able to understand how people are killing, what they're thinking about it, and kind of if they kill if they're murdering people in this one particular way, how does that reflect on their childhood or how does that reflect into what their day-to-day activities are? So very similar to what you're seeing in TV shows like Criminal Minds, trying to understand the background of serial killer. Ed was able to provide that to the FBI. The entire time you were going through your research on this episode, I was thinking of Criminal Minds, of like, okay, this is his profile, this is... Um, things that are triggering him. These are things that, you know, his his MO and how he's killing these people and who he's targeting. And um, even in Criminal Minds, we see, 
you know, the police will make a statement of look out for X, Y, and Z. Don't get in a car that doesn't have university sticker. Um, and he was able to play to that. So um, I could definitely see how this helped shape the creation of that bureau within the FBI. Even things at the beginning of his childhood where we talk about him killing animals. That right. is such a notable part into what makes serial killer and kind of their beginning steps into being aroused by blood. So things like that is really what helped propel the FBI into catching so many serial killers later down the road. And these interviews weren't the only times that Ed was so willing to talk to people. He even participated in two documentaries about serial killers. So there's a 1982 documentary called The Killing of America, and there's another one from 1984 calling The Murder No Apparent Motive. So Ed used his time within the in prison to really draw attention to serial killers especially during the 1970s and educate the public so while we do have him to thank for that he also did take 10 lives all because he had a grudge against his mother ed killed co-eds because his mom worked at the college ed killed women because his mom mistreated him his desire to destroy his mom caused him to take the lives of 10 people and he did not stop until his mom was eventually murdered by him, too. Ed publicly talked about his desire to kill and what satisfied him. He was unable to sustain a job while he was free, but he did successfully take a volunteer job, helping the FBI understand how to find serial killers and break down why serial killers crave the kill. Next week on Uneasy... Join us as we dive into the background of a true peeping Tom turned stalker and violent killer as we cover Derek Todd Lee, a.k.a. the Baton Rouge serial killer. As a child, he watched women from their windows and that characteristic carried into a much darker adult fixation on power and control. Lee is known to have killed seven women and suspected of killing more. Make sure to tune in next week to learn more about the violence that he spread, available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Thank you.